Yes, last week we started this new series on how to have sustainable growth in your life, especially in your relationship uh, with God as as a Christian. And we talked about last week about how Jesus came to actually um, help us align ourselves with God. We even call it a fatherly alignment, which makes sense. You know, if, if God is our father and our creator, that we would want to align our lives with him, especially if he is the one who rescued us. And we, we did talk about, we actually said together, you remember the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer is what? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done, what? On earth, just like it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, the things that we need. Forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, just as we forgive those who are indebted to us, who have sinned against us, who've trespassed um, against us. And lead us not into, it's not that God necessarily leads us to temptation, but we're saying, God, help us because we know we're tempted to walk away from you and to chase after other things. Lead us not temptation, but deliver us from Yes, and Jesus actually had a theology of evil. He understood that evil was very real and uh, very intentional in this world and that we look to God uh, for him to rescue us uh, from that. In fact, in, uh, in the Gospel of John, it's recorded where Jesus is praying and, he, and Jesus even says, Lord, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. I just pray that you would protect them from the evil one. Yeah, that's so that they would not fall into the wrong hands and chase after the wrong things. But today we're gonna talk about um, your faith. And I put in your outline, uh, position your faith. In fact, the original title was too long, had to cut it down. I I wanted to say, position yourself so that your faith can continue to grow. You can build strong faith, but that's too long of a title, so it's just position your faith to grow this, uh, this morning. But that's what That's what we have a chance to do. Faith is an unusual thing, isn't it? In fact, here's what people struggle uh, a lot of times with faith. I think it's in your outline. Um, Can you separate your faith from the object of your faith? What do you think? Separate your faith from the object of your faith. I would say yes, of course you can. I know some people would say no, and there are times in my life when I would say no, but I think you can. I think we do it all the time. We, we think of faith as something we have and that we possess and sort of a strength of who we are and that sometimes is separated from, as Christians, our faith is in Christ himself, is in God the Father, how he watches after. So we, we do separate them and often we talk about them and we deal with them uh, in a separate way because it, it's like this. Our faith, sometimes when we're talking about it, is sort of like our will and our determination to hold to what we want or how we think it should be. And and if we hold on to it long enough, hard enough, we keep on, then our will or how we see it will then what? Come about. I mean, that's sort of it. In fact, one of my examples I was going to use yesterday was if you believe and you have faith that the Texans are going to beat the Browns and you just hold on to it, right? And you just believe and you believe and you pray. And will the Texans then beat the Browns? And then someone reminded me yesterday, well, the game is today. I was like, what? Just blew my whole example, right? And uh, I know that some of you are going to think, no, no, because I willed it. And yeah, <laughs> it, actually, it actually happened. Yeah, it's, that's the struggle that we have. Just, just to let you know, 
while you, and, and maybe you weren't pulling for the Texans, while you might have been pulling for them, and you wanted to believe it and to trust that it would happen, there are some people in Ohio, right, that were doing the opposite. They were believing and holding to and trusting that the Cleveland Browns would beat the Texans. And now you have this dilemma. And the, the reason that, that we struggle with it is because that, that is a part of faith. I'm not saying that it's not. You will have to decide what you're gonna hold on to and what you're gonna grow in. And you will, for the most part, you will position your life toward uh, that end. But if, if God is your hope, and if, if God is the object of your faith, it actually changes how you understand and how you see and how you, you act out faith in your, in your life. In the Bible, faith goes all the way from the Old Testament, Genesis, goes all the way through Revelation. You continue to see the Bible talk about the place of faith, the effectiveness of faith, and the, and the primary uh, power of faith in people's lives. If, if you go back to the 11th chapter of, of uh, Genesis, there's a guy that shows up. This is early on in the story. Um, his name is Abram. Remember Abram? So Abram shows up, and uh, where the Jews, it's, it's used later, Paul uses uh, Abraham as a story with the Jewish people who hold to the law and say it's the law that connects us to God. And he talks about Abram uh, and Abraham being righteous before God, and there was no law. There wasn't. Not, not the law as we talk about it, the law from God. It was just Abraham believing and trusting God. So he lived in a land which is uh, a little bit south of maybe where Babylon is, is Ur, and uh, where we would find uh, modern day Iran. And that's where he lived and God called him out of that land to pick up his family and to go uh, over into a place that he would lead him and he would show him and he would guide him and wouldn't tell him where it is. And so he goes all the way sort of uh, northwest and he cuts across uh, the land to a place called Haran. And eventually um, he goes down into the land of Canaan in his life and he, and he gives him a promise because Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He put his hope and his faith in God. He gives him a promise. He says, I'll make you into a mighty nation. I, I, I'll build your family. And, and through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It, it, he reiterated this promise later to Isaac, his son. And then later again, he, he reiterates the same promise to Jacob, one of uh, Isaac's uh, sons. But he gives him this promise. And the strange thing about it is he's supposed to hold on to it, believe it, but Abraham and Sarah have no children. And, and Abraham being a practical man, right? He says, okay, I got you, but there's a problem here. How can I build a family and build a nation and bless the, how is that gonna happen practically? I have no kids and, and we're unable to have children. And so God promises them and he holds on, he promises and he holds on. And, and Sarah's uh, 90 years old when her son uh, Isaac is finally born. He's the the uh, child of a promise. In fact, when the messengers come one last time to remind her, no, it's still gonna happen, God promised. Sarah actually overhears the conversation uh, between these messengers of God and uh, Abraham, and she laughs. And at one of my favorite places uh, in Genesis, they come back and they say, why did you laugh? And she says what you and I might have said, 
oh, I didn't laugh. <laughs> I love it, don't you? I didn't laugh, and they said, oh, but you did. I like that, oh, but you did, because they, they knew, they understood, and they also understand her struggle. In fact, it's, it's part of the name of Isaac means laughter or sort of joy or whatever. I mean, that she actually names him because it's because she, she could not believe at that age, never being able to have a child, she would have a son. And this son would be the child of a promise. Now, this is me reading in between the lines. You're going to go back and you're going to read. Say, I don't find this part you're talking about. But I think if you, if you got the full story, you would see that later Sarah probably goes, what was I thinking? <laughs> I'm more than 90 years old. I don't need a child. I don't need a baby to take care of. But anyway, that's my part reading in there. So, uh, you know, but she didn't know any better. And this son becomes part of a promise and something that God does in her life. But Abraham had to position himself in a place where his faith and his trust would continue to grow. God, God said, go, he went, he moved. You know, we saw the same thing um, in, the, in the Christmas story. Hey, here's where the child's gonna be born. They went. And, and this, is, this is how you move your life and you position your life so that God can convince you and show you that he has plans and God will continue to work those plans out because you have a choice. You can say, no, I'm not gonna position myself that way. I'm gonna go a different direction, and people do sometimes, but you have a choice to whether or not you will believe God and you will trust God. Here's what in the book of Hebrews, this is New Testament, here's what it says in the book of Hebrews. There's sort of a definition in chapter number 11. It says in verse number one, now faith is the confidence that what we, what? hope for, right? Yeah, what's coming in the future, what we, what we hope for will actually happen. That is faith. He says it gives us assurance about the things we cannot see because they're in the future. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. Of course they did because they believed God, they trusted God, God did what he said he was gonna do and all of a sudden they looked at these people and said, whoa, how did they know that or why, why did they hold on to that? And it actually turned out really well because obviously they're connected to someone who, who does know. Verse three says this, now this is, that's the future, this is going back into the past because our faith connects us to the past also. He says, by faith we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command that what we now see did not come from anything that we can see. Do you, like, do you like history programs and science programs and things like that, anybody? Okay, I love them, I mean, I really do. And one of the things that I enjoy listening to is people coming on and they talk about the, how the universe was formed and the planets, not that anybody watch all those things? I mean, I think they're fascinating. But one of the things that's kind of fascinating to me is how they'll talk about, <laughs> and we know that the universe is 14 billion trillion years, and I'm like, Whoa, 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 They speak of it with such confidence. You want me to tell you why they can do that? Because you can't go back and refute it. <laughs> no more than they can go back and prove it, right? There's a certain amount of faith in their calculations and in their, in their yes, speculations for how things form that they have decided that causes them to know. It is different for us. It is different for us. God reveals something about what he decided to do and why he decided to do it. And, and we believe these things because God has revealed them, not because any of us were around at that time. We weren't. But we believe that God created the, the earth with a purpose. Um, he made us, 
created us the way we are for a reason, for a purpose. And our wills, as we struggle with those, uh, the difference in my will and God's will is a part of who we are, how God made us, but it's a part of the struggle that we're supposed to continue to grow in as we, as we continue to uh, move through life. And then he does this. I like this in Hebrews. He says, verse number four, it was by faith that Abel brought a more acceptable offering to God than Cain did. Now, Cain and Abel are the children of Adam and Eve. And if you know the story, at one point, they both bring an offering to God, and God rejects Cain's offering, and he accepts uh, Abel's offering. And Abel's offering is often, uh, or Cain's offering is often debated, why did God reject Cain's offering? He actually brought an offering of grain, and Abel brought an offering of a, of a lamb or, or a, uh, a young animal. And so, you know, they're offering, looking at it, saying, well, it was because of this. Because the Hebrews, actually, what, what he, the author says is, well, he accepted Abel's offering because it was made in faith. <laughs> Which is certainly indicating that Cain's, there was something different about how Cain offered his offering to God. See, I think that's, that's telling for you and I. How are you going to approach God? It, it's not because... You have to have such faith and you understand it and you figured it out. It's just, do you believe God? Do you trust God even though you don't know everything? You can't figure it? Do you say, but yeah, but I still believe that there's a God who watches after my life. And, and that is gonna be built on not only the future, you know, your hopes for the future, but even how you understand and how you see the past uh, in your life. That's, that's what you will continue to build your faith on. And it says this uh, in the next sentence, it says, Abel's offering gave evidence that he was a righteous man. This ties to Abraham, because Abraham is declared to be righteous before God, not because he was sinless or perfect, but because of his faith. And it says that God credited him as righteous because he believed and he trusted God. He did the things that God asked him to do. Abraham sinned a lot. He had a lot of struggles in his life, but he still somehow moved forward trusting God. And it says, and God showed his approval of um, of his gifts, these are Abel's. Although Abel is long dead, he still speaks to us by his example of faith. Verse five, it was by faith that Enoch, another Old Testament guy, he was taken up to heaven without dying. He disappeared because God took him. For before he was taken up, he was known as a person who, say this with me, who did what? Yeah, that's a great word, he pleased God. In other words, he acted upon what he knew God asked him to do and what he, what he looked at God and understood, and, he, and this pleased God. It was his faith, his trust in God that pleased God. Same thing with Abraham, which is why he credited him as righteous, because nobody's gonna be sinless, nobody's gonna be perfect, but this is, this is how God dealt with him. In verse six, and it says this, great verse. And it is impossible to please God without what? Faith, yeah. It's impossible to please God without trusting him. It is. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists, and I like this part, and that he does what? He rewards those who sincerely seek him. Something we came, we dealt with last week also. Is God a God of rewards? Of course he is. 
There's a reward for trusting God and putting your hope in God and putting your faith in God. There, there's something that you gain by trusting him because God is faithful to the things that, uh, that he says he's gonna do. Now, I, did, I put this in your outline because this is something you have to understand about Christianity or Christians or what we understand from the Bible. For, for Christians, for Christians, God is both the object of our faith and he is the source of our faith. And that often causes people to struggle because they'll wanna do one or the other and they can't quite figure it out. It's because it, it's so intertwined. It's so tied into the one same thing, which is like I said, why we struggle so much. Okay, God is the object of my faith, but I still sin, I sin, but God is also the source of my faith. I believe because of what he's done and what he has shown, and, it, and it's so dynamically just interwoven and tied together that sometimes we struggle with explaining it and, um, and trying to deal with it. So here, let me take you to a New Testament uh, passage uh, because when Jesus came, people were seeking him uh, because of who Jesus was, the things that he said, um, the things that he did because he did things that other people were not capable of doing. And one of my favorite stories, this is, in, this is the version in Mark's gospel. You'll find it in several others, but Mark gives some, other, some details that I like and the others don't. Here's what he says, this is Mark chapter two. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, Capernaum is north of the Sea of Galilee. It's up on the, on the top, and it's, it's gonna refer to it as his home. And I know you may think, well, I thought Jesus was born in Nazareth. He, he, he or born in Bethlehem, but lived in Nazareth. He did. But once Jesus started his ministry, his kind of home base was Capernaum on the north side of the uh, Sea of Galilee. So uh, it says that when he returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, let me ask you a question. Who do you think the there is? I think it's the four guys, right? I don't think he's talking about the crowd. He doesn't even seem to be referring to the man that's lower down. Seeing their faith, the four guys up on the roof, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your what? Your sins are forgiven. Whoa. Now this might have been a lot of, Scholars believe this is Matthew's home where Jesus based himself. Um, it's, this is an area where Matthew came from when he was following him. Probably a good, uh, a good guess or a good, good pick. But can you imagine if it was, and you're Matthew, and you're in your house, and you're in this crowd. Nobody else can get in the door. In fact, it's crowded outside the door. And all of a sudden, some guys are tearing your roof apart. Can you imagine, I mean, this morning, if all of a sudden the metal started coming off of the roof here in the ceiling and we were going like, what, and things are dropping on you, right? And all of a sudden someone is lowered down on a, some sort of pallet, you know, by people with ropes and they are lowering, lowering that person down. You would be like, what is going on? And if you're the owner of the house, you're saying, and who's gonna fix my roof, you know? So, uh, what, you know, what is going on? Why would they do something like this? They were determined that the crowd, the ability to get to Jesus was not gonna stop them 
from getting this man, who must have been their friend, getting him to Jesus. Why? Because they'd heard about him, heard what he said, heard what he could do. They thought, here's the chance for this man to walk again. He's paralyzed, he can't walk. Jesus could make him walk. I mean, we've, we've got to do this. And they were willing to do whatever it, whatever it took. See, I look at it as, in a sense, what they're doing, they don't realize it when they're doing it. They're positioning themselves. They're putting themselves in a place where Jesus would see their friend and Jesus would do something for him that he could not do for himself and they certainly couldn't do and nothing of humanity at the time could possibly fix him. So they lower him down. And then Jesus does something really strange, right? He looks at the guy and he says, your what? Sins are forgiven. And I, I, you know the people in the crowd are going, I, I think it's his legs that, you know, that, I think that's, yeah, well, yeah. But your sins are forgiven. It also stirs up the religious leaders who were there. They're pretty upset with Jesus because they, they were fine with Jesus being a man. But in this case, Jesus is proclaiming himself as as God, in fact, they say to him, you can't say that. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus doesn't argue with him. <laughs> he just, he takes the statement as, okay, you're right. And he was saying to them, he was God, yeah. Pretty profound statement for Jesus to make. In fact, they're really upset with him. And I know you may think, well, so Jesus does this. He says, okay, listen, here's a question for you. Which would be easier to say? Isn't this a great question? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. What would be easier to say? What do you think? See, I know that uh, you, you might think, well, um, your sins are forgiven, right? Because who's gonna check that out? Who can prove whether that worked, did not work or whatever? You know, it's a statement that sometimes people do things like that and there's no way to understand or to know so, I mean, you're making a statement, your sins are forgiven, what difference does that make, you know? So Jesus says this, so that you will understand that the Son of Man, it was a title that Jesus liked to use uh, of himself. It's, it's not a reference, as it sounds like, a reference to Jesus' humanity. It actually comes from uh, Daniel's prophecy as a divine term, but he liked to use it for himself, so that you would understand that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins, Rise up, take up your bed, walk. I told you it was packed, it was crowded. Somehow they made room for this bed to come all the way down. You know when this guy gets up and he walks out, oh, there's a parting of the ways, right? Because they're like, whoa, you know, don't touch him or, you know, because something strange is going on when this guy walks out. In fact, some of the other writers in the Gospels, uh, when they refer to this story, they actually say, and, and fear overcame the crowd. Sure it did. We've never seen anything like this before. What is going on? This guy can walk. So here's, here's the point. I, I hope you catch this. It, it's not that he can walk. That, I mean, that was a proof of who Jesus was. It's that Jesus really did forgive his sins, something he could not do for himself, just like he couldn't make himself walk. And Jesus does this incredible thing for him. That I know that you might think, oh, yeah, but the walking is a big, so what would be the bigger deal? To be able to walk or to know that your sins have been forgiven? I know we would say to walk. No, hang on, hang on. So if you knew you were okay with God, if you knew that all the things that you had done, you don't want anybody to know about, 
where your heart was, what you, if, if you knew that God had said those things are taken care of, you are righteous in my eyes. And if, if you knew that, would that make a change in your life? Sure it would. You, you would have this incredible sense of confidence. You'd have this incredible sense of freedom. How you treated other people, the things that you took offense over, where you know we are, we're pretty small and the things we take offense at, you know, that somebody's not doing what we want. To, you, you would be, you'd be a totally different person if you knew that you had been taken care of, that you had been set free from your own sins. That's what Jesus offers. It's, it's an incredible thing that he does for this man. And he also allows him to walk. But walking is temporary. He won't walk forever, right? He only go a short period of time. I have a uh, had a friend that passed away this past week, and um, in the hospital room one day he would only do this um, in in private. He didn't do this uh, in public. But as we were talking together, and he was just such an, an, a kind man and and um, just a, a wonderful man and a wonderful friend, he he started talking about now in his illness. He's almost eighty one years old. And um, in his illness, he, t- he talked about, you know, there's a part of me that just fears that this is God punishing me for my sins. I told him, of course you think that way. I would think that way also. We, we all think things like that because we know we are unworthy and God sees us as we really are. What if this is kind of a consequence or God punishing us? But we got a chance to talk and, and, and talk about what we know, and we know that that's not how God sees it, that we are rescued because of what God did for us, not because we are sinless. Our righteousness comes because of our faith in God, because we put our trust in him, and he gives us something as a gift that we could not earn or or build or make happen ourselves. We just get a chance to put ourselves in that position and God gives us this incredible gift. And of course, it, you know, he knew that and as we talked about it, we had a chance to celebrate you know, again what God had done um, in his life and, uh, and I could do the same thing and just, and just you know, marvel in God's love for us and the freedom that God gives us and that this life is just part of what life is as far as what God has given us. It's just temporary. And this body will fail. Of course it will fail. And it does fail because of its corruption. No doubt about it. But our hope and our future is bigger than just this. And that's what he was holding on to also. What a gift. What a gift that God gives to us in that way. Now, one of the questions would be, because a lot of people struggle with this, what if my faith isn't big enough? What if my faith isn't strong enough? Is there a degree to faith? And there are places, right, where Jesus says, O ye of little, and you're like, well, isn't Jesus talking about a degree of faith? In some ways, maybe, but I'm not sure that's really what he's referring to. I think maybe Jesus is referring to do you believe, do you, do you have faith, and that, because of that, will you trust me uh, in this? And, and that's a hard thing for us sometimes because the things that we see kind of work against our faith a lot of times, and then when we see him and we get close to him, all of a sudden, faith or our understanding of faith changes. And there's this wonderful uh, passage 
uh, where Jesus is actually uh, talking about not just how strong your faith is. I think if you look at this, he's talking about what kind of faith do you have? Where are you putting your faith? Where are you, where are you putting your trust? And this is what it says in Luke chapter 17. It says, the apostles uh, said to the Lord, show us how to, say this with me, how to do what? Increase our faith. Help us. Show us how to increase our faith. And Jesus answered, he said, if you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and thrown into the sea and it would obey you. It would happen the way you said. Now, let me just put a little challenge out there because another place um, one of the gospel writers says, and Jesus said, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea and it would it would you know, be thrown into the ocean. Do you ever remember any places in the Bible where it says, and the apostles went around casting mulberry trees into the ocean, or casting mountains? Anybody remember any places like that? No, why? Because it's an illustration. Jesus is, is saying this as, as like a metaphor for how your life would be totally different if you just had one thing, faith the size of a mustard seed. My understanding is mustard seeds in their day would be considered the tiniest of the tiniest seeds. Wouldn't you think that it would have been better if Jesus had said something like, if you had the faith of a, I don't know, what's a big seed, a pumpkin seed? How about an avocado seed? I mean, you know, the center of an avocado. I mean, if you had faith the size of an avocado seed, then you could do these things. No. He, I don't think he's talking about the size. I think he's talking about what have you put your faith in? What are you trusting in? And, and, and even something so tiny, so insignificant, because people will look at your faith and say, so what is that, right? What, is, what does that mean, you know? It's just what you're gonna do and how you're gonna build your life and who you're gonna fight against. And, you know, all those things are what really matters in life. It, how, how would it matter who, where your faith is? That, that is so insignificant. But what Jesus is saying, no, it's not insignificant at all. In another place where he talks about it, he says, and it grows and it becomes a, a tree and, and animals find shade in it. Yes, and you're like, all oh, from that? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because your faith connects you to the power of God himself. Not that you control it, you don't. <laughs> but he can do anything he wants. And if, if God says, hey, I want you to go do this. You can trust God that God will make things happen the way he wants them to happen, and he will do things that you and I could never do, and people get a chance to look at your life and sort of like the, the people with faith of old, you, know, you have a different reputation because of where you've put your trust and where you've put your hope, where you've put your, uh, your faith. Years ago, um, my wife, knows uh, this guy. Years ago when we were in Houston, I worked at a church, there was a guy named Richard. And um, Richard would come to church and we we're down in the Southwest side, so it's a nice area of Houston near the Galleria. And um, Richard was about my height, but he probably weighed 120 pounds maybe, something like that. He, uh, he, he had drug issues and uh, he would not talk hardly to anyone. I mean, he was so quiet. He would come to the church and it was pretty clear that he felt really out of place and not like anyone else. And um, what I would say to Joni is that day we go home, I would say, I saw Richard, I talked to him, and I would always say this. 
And I think that's probably the last time we'll ever see him. He won't ever come back to church again. Why? Because I thought, because he's not like everybody. He's obviously, he must feel out of place. You know, it, it must be such a hard thing. And as much as that, that hurt me to say it, I just thought, I'm, I'm just being honest with you. You know, I know how people are, you know, how we, how we see things in life. And the next Sunday, guess what? Richard would be back. And so the next Sunday afternoon, as I would see my wife, I'd say, yeah, but I'm sure that's the what? Last time, right? Oh, ye of little faith, right? Oh, yeah, that was me. I'm just trying to put it in human terms. I just thought, that's it. He's not gonna come back. Maybe you were like that at, at some point in your life. Maybe you've felt like that at some point in your life. Sure, Richard struggled just like we all did. One time, uh, months later, he's back every week. One months later, I'm driving down the road early in the morning. It's Houston. It's the middle of the summer. It's blazing hot already at like six in the morning. And I see a guy walking down the road and it's Richard. So I pull over, I said, hey, Richard. I said, where are you heading? So I'm going to church. I'm like, okay. I mean, it's like two or three hours before anything starts. I said, hop in, ride with me. I'll drive you, I'll drive you there. And on the drive, I started asking him. I say, so you know, tell me about you know, why you'd be out this early and you're walking. And he said, okay, well, this is the way it works. And Richard wore the same pants, he had this, I don't know if you remember those silk-looking shirts that have scenes, you know, of Paris on them. Remember those things? Made out of polyester, but it kind of looked like, you know, silk. He'd have the same shirt and the same pair of pants every, every Sunday on. He said, so what happens is, if I leave this early, that by the time I get to church, long before everybody else gets there, I have a chance to go inside and sit and wait, and I can dry out. That's literally what he would do. All the sweat from walking there would dry out, and that way, you know, he wouldn't be embarrassed about looking soaking wet when he came to church. And I was, I had to talk, ask him. I said, you know, it just amazes me that, that to see you every week, it's an encouragement to me. It is, because I'm like, I said, so why do you come every week? This is what he said. He said, I, I understand what you're saying. He said, but once I heard about who Jesus was, and the things that Jesus does for people that he, he has done, I just thought, I, I want that. So every week I come because I want that. And, and I, the story still holds with me, as you can tell, because I'm thinking, wow. I mean, what, what, a, what a word, a testimony for him to say that. And it inspired me to say, okay, how much do I want it? Here's a guy who realizes how different it is and, and he wants it and he comes every week, even if he has to walk hours ahead of time so he can dry out, you know? So nobody would understand that he walked in order to get there because most people didn't walk to get to church uh, then. Last time I saw Richard, uh, Richard weighed more like 170 pounds. Um, no more drug issues. Uh, his work had gone well. In fact, he had moved up and gotten other jobs and was responsible and people respected and hired him. He was married and he had a family. And I think, wow. He positioned himself. He put himself in a place where he could continue to learn. He could continue to grow. He continued to be encouraged. He was around people who believed the same thing. He got in a place where he could understand what the Bible said and he could study it with other people. And that continued to grow his faith and move his faith forward. And yes, did it change his life? Oh my goodness, like a, like a mustard seed, right? Blooming into something, growing into something that there's no way he could see that for his life before. But God had other plans um, for Richard. 
One last passage. This is Paul. He's speaking to uh, Timothy. This is an older guy speaking to a younger guy, a new generation. And this is what he says at the end of this uh, second letter that he wrote to Timothy. This is what he says. He says, but evil people and imposters will flourish. I don't know if you're okay with that. <laughs> but Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy was okay with that. That's the way the world is. Humanity's not gonna change that part because we do have wills and we do um, have the opportunity to do what we wanna do, whether it's destructive or whether it's productive. And then he adds this, he says, they will deceive others and they will themselves be, say it with me, what? Yeah, they think they're doing the best thing for themselves. They think this is the way you're supposed to live. Okay, so he's reminding of that. Then he says this in 14. But you, you must remain faithful to the things you've been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you, because there were those who raised Timothy up as a young man, teaching him the things of God and teaching them what God has promised. He verse 15, you've been taught the holy scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting, or literally by faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God. It is useful to teach us what is true and to uh, make us realize what is wrong with our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do the right thing. In other words, the better the thing, the, the, the thing that God made us for, and what God designed us for. And he says, verse 17, God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do what? Every good work. Boy, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to know that your life and what you did in life was a good thing? That the things that you pursued and you chased after were not only good for you, but they were good for the people around you and the community around you and the families. Around. That's, that's what God moves us toward. He tells us the truth. You can live this kind of life. You can't live it on your own. You're not gonna figure it out. But God puts us in a position or he, he urges us to put ourselves in a position where our trust in him, our faith in him can continue to grow. You struggle? I do. Fears in your life sometimes? Sure. Anxiety? Anybody struggle with anxiety? Absolutely, we all do. There are difficulties, there are emotions, there are painful things that happen in our life. Listen, that's a part of life. But you and I get a chance to put ourselves in a place where we can know what God says, we can understand his promises for us. We don't control it. But we know that God is someone that we can trust and that we should put our hope in. I, I told you about the, uh, the man that passed away. A couple of days ago, I was with another friend of his and we were talking, and this, this, this really encouraged me as we were talking about this guy's life. And I mentioned about how I was there this, just the day before, or two days before, and I spent two hours with him. And so he's, he's less than two days away from his last breath. I spent two hours with him, and, and he talked for two hours. He talked more than I did. I know you don't believe that. You're going to say, oh, come on. You expect me to believe that he out-talked the Yes. I mean, he, and he never drank any water, and he just, he just continued to talk about all the things that God had done in his life. I mean, it was encouraging to me. It was just, you know, kind of blew me away at, at how much he had learned. He talked about as, as he was growing and, and later in life, he would go to these groups of young people, young men and women, 
who would gather together and they would talk about their relationship to Jesus Christ and how it just, you know, enlightened him and he just caught something that he never understood before. Because he grew up in a church, so he knew what was right and wrong, but all of a sudden this became more and more real. And he would just show up in these groups just to help and just to serve. He was always faithful, always kind in everything he did, but always a straight shooter. And he would talk about those groups and how much, how much of a difference that made in his life. To see Jesus Christ real in somebody else's life, growing, praying together, encouraging one another, and the difference that it made. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you that um, it is your desire to increase our faith, to strengthen us, to move us forward and give us something that we could never have in life on our own. A real faith, a real strength that comes from knowing you and the things that you have done. Even now, Father, help us. Show us the things that we need to do to grow in our faith, the places we need to be, maybe the group that we need to jump in on, to be around other people who are also growing, the time that we need to invest in your word, the scriptures that are faithful to teach us, correct us, train us, move us forward so that our lives could be used for the good things that you planned for us in life. If you're here and you've never put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, maybe you've been trying to make it yourself, make your own way, make your own way work, and you realize that there's a different way. You can look to him and trust in him, trust in his way. Trust that he will lead you and he will guide you. He will be faithful and he is. He's always been faithful to those who believe in him, who trust in him. You can say, Lord Jesus, thank you. That you loved me and cared about me. You made me the way I am, but you also knew what my life could be. So I I trust you, forgive me my sins, because I know that there are many. And I thank you that, that you took my sins upon yourself and you give me a, a, a righteousness, a right standing with God that there's no way I earned that, but it's a gift that you give to me. Lord, lead me, show me the life that you want for me as I pray in Jesus' name.